Perfect. All right. So hello, everyone. Welcome to the Exeter Law Review podcast. We have a very special episode today because we are here with the London School of Economics Law Review. Uh, so, Jaron, would you mind just starting by explaining a bit about what the LSE Law Review do? Sure. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so my name is Jaron. I'm the editor in chief of the LSE Law Review. I'm very happy to have everyone here today. Uh, so just wanted to introduce the LSC Law Review. We're now in our sixth year of publication. Uh, we are like the Exeter Law Review, a student-run journal. Uh, so we have expanded over the course of six years to both uh, platforms as well as the blog platforms. And over the course here, we do run seminars events too, uh, this being one of them. So we are published on Houghton Street Press, print of the LSE Press. Uh, we do run our own website for the blog, uh, that's LSE Law Review blog. And specifically on the events front, uh, this year we've been actively looking to engage students, uh, especially year one LLB students who have uh, perhaps received less support uh, during COVID-19 and with the online university curriculum. So I think uh, this event especially has been extremely beneficial uh, for students to perhaps engage in more academic discourse. And we're very happy to be collaborating with um, Exeter Law Review this time around. Amazing, thanks, Jaron. So um, for LSE members, uh, hello, uh, I'm Francis, and I am here with my co-editor-in-chief, Shania, who you should see at the top of your screens. Uh, and a bit about the Exeter Law Review. So we are, uh, as Jared said, entirely student run, and we feature some of the brightest minds that the University of Exeter has to offer. So we're a board of uh, 21 uh, postgraduate and undergraduate uh, students. So we not only represent a large amount of the cohort itself, but also a wide variety of legal specialisms within that. We're also the first UK undergraduate law journal to release a podcast, which we started in 2019. And we are also in the midst of publishing our 46th annual journal, which should be up fairly soon. And uh, alongside this, we're also running frequent shorter publications on our blog. So introducing the important people for today. So uh, we've got our two interviews. So that's Fizza and Celine. Thank you so much for joining us. And we've also got our interviewee, Julius. So Julius is the author of Unintentional Transmission of Disease Revisited, a taught law perspective on COVID-19, which was published in 2020. He is the current seminars editor of the LSE Law Review, the 2020-21 editorial board. He's the former notes editor on private law of the 2020 summer editorial board and the former junior articles editor of the 2019 to 20 editorial board. Honestly, I'm surprised Judith, you have enough time to talk to us. Um, his research interests include tort law, commercial law and private law theory. So welcome Julius, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you Francis, happy to be here. All right, so I'm gonna hand over to Fizza and Celine who I'm sure have a lot of questions for you. Thanks, Fran. Um, perhaps a good starting point would be the two models you propose uh, for a duty of care to be founded on. So the model of costs and um, the model of wrongs. Um, my question for you is, could the ideal model, let's say, uh, be a fusion of the model of wrongs and the model of costs, depending on the compatibility um, of each model with different situations requiring different responsibilities, so um, such as a model of wrongs being used as a general model um, in line with Ripstein's conception of mutual uh, independence that you talk about in your article. So the general assumption in a public space at any given time uh, and model of costs being used in the cases of older adults, for example, um, and individuals with underlying health conditions since it relates to the most efficient way um, of minimizing costs related to transmission. I see, I see. Um, thank you so much, Celine, for the question. I think that's very um, pertinent. Uh, just to give a bit of background for everyone here, um, what I mean by model of wrongs and model of costs. So these two models are sort of justificatory models uh, to justify an allocation of um, duty of care. So in private law, whether it is in contract or it is in tort, it's all about risk allocation. And in, in tort law, and especially about the in the context of disease transmission, we're trying to see um, 
if everyone is innocent, how do we allocate risk and how do we allocate burden of repair? And that this is where the two models comes in, where we use model of wrongs or model of cost to justify how we allocate this risk and burden. And model of cost, uh, sorry, model of wrongs is more, this, I think is the most intuitive one to everyone who has some fundamental background in tort law because it is based on wrongdoing. So I own a duty of care to the other person. And if I breached it, um, I should be liable to pay because I'm a wrongdoer. But model of cost is slightly different. It justifies this duty in a different way. It doesn't really look at you know, wrongdoing, but it looks at how we could allocate responsibility in the most socially efficient way to achieve um, the most socially optimal outcome. And that is why these um, economics um, theory of tort law, they see themselves as um, you know, trying to achieve this optimal deterrence or optimal allocation of resources. Um, in society as a whole. So I, I think um, the, these, because, because these are two justificatory models, it, it doesn't really necessarily say uh, we should see them as a test of how, uh, how okay, I, I should put it in a different way. And they are not tests per se in a sense that, oh, because this model says this, we should allocate responsibility in this way and therefore we can achieve a you know, contradictory outcome. There are just different ways of justifying the same uh, duty in this context here. So I think model of wrongs is very, is very intuitive for everyone, as I said, because just like COVID-19, I have a duty to make sure that I don't uh, harm you physically. Or if you look at, look at it in a trespass case, um, there's no trespass against the other person's bodily integrity. So this is a duty I own to everyone to make sure that I, I don't unnecessarily make, make you sick. So that's model of wrongs. But model of cost um, doesn't really look at this. It sees that how we could uh, minimize the transmission of COVID-19 in the most efficient way. So if by putting the burden on the uh, defendant in this case, which is the COVID-19 spreader, if we put the responsibility on these group of people, is this the most efficient way to achieve or of reducing the transmission of COVID-19? And that is where in the article I realized that, oh, Either way you choose either model of wrongs or model of cost, you, you may arrive at the same result of saying, we should put a burden on the person who has COVID-19 to make sure that he or she does not go around recklessly spreading COVID-19. But um, I think, but to your question about how we could uh, combine these or uh, to sort of uh, make it for the most vulnerable people, um, I think this is very context specific, just like you know, every tort law adjudication uh, b before the court, we will need to look at the different circumstances and to apply the different models as a justificatory uh, explanation of why we put the burden on the defendant in this case. But I think um, if you use model of wrongs, it's, it's very likely you will still find in most of the situations that the burden will be on the defendant because um, everyone, has a, it's pretty well established that you have a duty to others not to hurt this person, not to subject his or her, not to subject this person to a physical, physical invasion by a virus. But from a, from a model of cost perspective, the result might change in certain circumstances. For example, um, ordinarily you might be, I mean, I mean, the person who has the virus might be in a best position to stop you know, the spread of the virus by wearing a mask. This is simply because he has the knowledge that he might be infectious. The other person has no reason to believe so. So this comparative uh, position makes it easier or more cost-effective for the person who have the virus, uh, who has the virus, to, you know, have this duty or to do something to discharge this duty of care. But there, but there might be some situations um, where uh, the so-called the potential victim might be in a position to self-protect. But, but I think these are special situations um, that doesn't justify a general removal of duty of care on those people who have this virus. So that is why I think um, regardless of which, which model you choose, you might very likely arrive at the same outcome in the end. Thank you, that was very insightful. And is that? <laughs> yeah, sorry for being a bit long because just to give everyone some context, about no, what I mean by, by the two, yeah. Because I mean, the, these are not traditionally endorsed models. These are what, you know, the academics try to make sense of what the case law is talking about. 
and make, make, make some recommendations of you know, how we could understand duty of care. And to be honest, the, the most influential scholars on the economics theory of tort law are from the United States. And especially like Polinsky and, and Chevelle, they, they, will, they, they see tort law as merely a, a tool to allocate resources, not, not, not a matter of you know, rights and duties that you know, English uh, judges are more uh, familiar with. Definitely. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and from kind of a practical standpoint, does the duty of care only arise when a person starts manifesting symptoms? Um, and kind of how could this be reconciled with asymptomatic disease carriers who kind of unknowingly transmit COVID-19 by negligently breaking restrictions? Um, so kind of as a follow-up question in this sense, could there be a tension between balancing fairness for defendants and kind of compensation for victims? Um. Yeah, so as you pointed out, COVID-19 is special um, because it, those people who does not exhibit any symptoms can transmit this virus. And sometimes they, they do not even know that they have the virus by themselves. So that is, that is where we have to tailor the duty of care to, to suit this, this special unique feature of the virus as well. And, and that is why I proposed um, in the article saying that we should have a very broad understanding of duty of, duty of care in disease transmission, you know, by, you know, virtually encompassing everyone um, in England and Wales to, to subject them to this duty of care where they have to um, at least take care not to recklessly spread COVID-19 um, so as to you know, capture those asymptomatic ones as well. And, th and this is, I mean, of, of course, you mentioned fairness argument here. Um, and we could try to justify the fairness and the reasonableness of this proposal from public policy perspectives. Uh, but but bear, bear in mind, some people might disagree. Uh, I would say, you know, those very dogmatic uh, tort law theorists like, you know, Alan Beaver, they would say, oh, tort law should not have any policy um, arguments at all. That should be part of the parliament. But um, that's actually not what the court has been doing. And especially from Caparo, they explicitly, you know, allowed and, and welcome, you know, any justification, even including policies. Um, that, that might be relevant in, in what James Stapleton says, all these policies and principles are relevant to the adjudication of, uh, of tort law. So if we look at policy here, I identified two policy reasons. The firstly is, well, because it is, you know, um, there are asymptomatic transmitters. Therefore, if you just focus your duty of care on those people who are tested positive for COVID-19 or who have exhibited some symptoms of COVID-19, um, you might, it may not really achieve the end goal of you know, reducing the transmission of COVID-19 because there will be some people who are not captured by this duty and still spreading the virus around. And, and this, is, this defeats the whole purpose of uh, you know, having a legal solution to reduce the spread of COVID-19. So that's why you need to define it broader to capture this potential pool of people who um, are not you know, physically, manifested, uh, physically manif manifest themselves with the virus. The second reason is that there might be a perverse incentive as well if you limit the, the duty of care too narrowly, because if you say, oh, you only have a duty of care if you are positive or if you have some symptoms, then, then this is, might create a perverse incentive where people, you know, I rather not to go have a test to see whether I am positive or not, because if I do and I, it turns out I am positive, I might be you know, given this very onerous duty of care to make sure that I don't, I don't spread it to other people. But if I do not know that I have this um, virus or do not seek any test to find out whether I have the virus, um, then I, I am, I'm, free to, I'm free from this duty and I can do whatever I want, which again, defeats the whole purpose from a public health point of view, why we need to have this uh, tour in the first place. So that's why I think um, because of these reasons of public health concerns, it might be, it is arguable, just it, okay. It is justifiable to impose a duty of care on a wider pool of people uh, beyond those who are just, you know, tested positive. Thank you so much. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Um, and over to Celine. Um, and you talked about, you know, tort law as a kind of resource allocation, you know, dynamic and 
um, also the kind of economic perspective. Um, in your opinion, what issues can be uh, identified when it comes to the definition of the party best place? Because you were talking about, you know, public health concerns just now. Um, so the party best place to decide on the most efficient way of minimizing costs related to transmission. Um, in your opinion, is it the state or the infectious individual that is best place to determine this? And um, if, it, if it is the state, is there a risk um, that it may be thought that the cost of minimizing, um, as Calabresi talks about it, um, may prove greater than inaction to them? I see. Actually, that's a very sharp question. I th I, and I think how we could determine a person in the best place to uh, minimize a, a cost is uh, the debate by many um, scholars in the same field on, on the economics field on how we had achieved this. And there are many uh, theories being dashed out in, in, the, in, this, in this regard. I think the most original one, I mean, is from the Coase theorem in the economics. So Coase theorem, I think Ronald Coase won a Nobel Prize for this. Um, and he was imagining a situation where what, what would the parties bargain if there are no transaction costs? And transaction costs in this situation is where, because you know they don't know each other, they're complete strangers beforehand, and they cannot bargain, you know, as 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 if they have a contract. So the court would imagine in the situation: oh, if there are no such transaction costs, if they can sit down on a table and bargain how to allocate this responsibility with regard to disease transmission, what would their result be? So um, this is you know a hypothetical exercise engaged by the court. As per, and if we use the Ronald Codes, the Coase theorem. But I mean, there are actually other ways to achieve this. And I think um, one of the most famous uh, economics, or how do I say, a judge who endorsed this economics kind of thinking is Leonard Hand. That, that's his name. His name is Leonard Hand, okay? Um, so, so he actually laid out a formula in one of the cases saying that, oh, if you multiply, uh, the cost, or in this case, the consequence of being transmitted with COVID-19 with the possibility of transmission. And if this um, is, is greater than the benefit of you not, not taking precaution, then you should take care. Um, so, so, this is, so, so this is applied individually. It's not, it's not applied comparatively. So in a sense that if the formula used by Leonard Han is a positive outcome for both the state and the individual, we will see a situation where both the state and the individual will, you know, will take care. Um, but I mean, I mean, obviously this will result in a wasteful of resources. So some economics theorists think that, okay, this month there might be a duplication of taking care and therefore it may not be the most ideal. Um, so I think in this case, in my personal opinion, I think uh, we would probably adopt what Stephen Chevelle has said in terms of whether we should, um, Okay, but Stephen Chevelle was talking about in you know, a different context, but we can draw some analogy here. So he was saying uh, there are four there are four factors we should pay attention to before we decide even we should use a liability regime or uh, or a statutory regime to to combat this disease transmission. And he identified four factors. So these are differences in knowledge. Um, so the first one. Um, so it means that oh, who has better knowledge about COVID-19? So I, I think at the beginning stage of this pandemic, individuals like us, we may not know too much about the nature of this, this disease. So it's actually better for the state to intervene because it has better knowledge. However, this may change. And now because COVID-19 has been covered so widely across you know, the globe, and I think uh, there is a reason for individuals to, to have this, to take up this duty once they have better knowledge of it, um, at, at least objectively speaking, not subjectively. And then second reason is that, you know, private parties might be incapable of paying the bill. So, I mean, in the UK, it might not be a situation here because everyone has NHS coverage and, um, or in a sense that, um, at, at least in terms of ensuring compensation for the victim, um, in the UK, we have NHS coverage, but in other countries, if you put the burden of repair purely on the defendant, he or she might go bust, and especially in a wrongful death claim, by the way. So he or she might go bust and there's no deep pocket to claim any compensation in that regard. So in order to ensure compensation for the victim, in this situation, it might be better for the state to come in and intervene rather than leaving it to the individual who might not be solvent enough to pay for the damages. And I think the third third point, I think it's, it, to be honest, the most, um, interesting one, I would say, is the 
risk of suit. So uh, I think Stephen Chappelle was talking about a situation where if the risk is more dispersed in a sense that, and let's imagine a, a, a village, okay? And there's a factory with you know toxic smoke emitting from the chimney. If this chimney is built so high, such that the emission of the chemicals was into the greater atmosphere and the cost suffered by individual was very negligible and people do not even know that they are you know, inhaling these toxic chemicals, then this factory will have a very small chance of being sued by the individuals. However, let's imagine if this chimney is directed only towards a particular household, to, a, to the neighbor, and this particular household inhales all the smoke. So there's a higher, likely, higher likelihood that this particular household will take up the action and sue this, sue this um, factory. And um, so, so there's a difference of the likelihood of this you know, factory being sued. And because we want to you know, reduce this wrongful behavior, it will be very undesirable if the you know, particular factory can just escape from liability by dispersing the risk. So here as well in COVID-19, if we can, uh, if the result is that the, the, the consequence of being transmitted to COVID-19 is very well dispersed by that particular individual, then that particular individual may not have a very high risk of being sued. So that's, that might justify the intervention by the state. However, in my personal opinion, um, if you just transmit the virus to the other person, the, the other person, him, him or herself, actually got the virus. So I, I think there's a high likelihood of uh, you know, in, initiating a suit here, and especially if someone has died of, from this uh, negligent transmission of COVID-19. Yeah, so from all these from all these factors, if you consider them, I think um, the liability should still be falling on the individual. Of course, um, the state will also have some uh, responsibility in trying to make sure that everyone is aware of this risk, so that you won't be completely ignorant of what's happening in the world. But I think, um, at least at this stage, at so advanced stage of the pandemic, I, I doubt hardly anyone could be not aware of this COVID-19, at least in England and Wales. <laughs> yeah. um, this kind of leads on to, um, from what you've said previously, but um, in terms of practicality, as we've mentioned... Um... Um, oh, I think I was muted. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of practicality, um, as we've mentioned, an airborne disease yeah. like COVID-19 is able to spread much faster and more widely than many other cases that we've seen previously in tort law. So um, if you compare it to kind of HIV, which can only be passed through direct contact, so you've got that more individual kind of um, contact. And my question is, how could we combat the potential influx of cases and the opening of floodgates when it comes um, to kind of an already overburdened court system? Um, for example, if one person could potentially infect 40 people in a crowded train, um, could the disease carrier be sued by every single person that he potentially infected? Um, so basically, how could this be mitigated to kind of limit the potential claimant base? Yeah, right. Um, yes, the floodgate argument, that, that's actually very practical. And I think, okay, as a preliminary point, we should say that um, the control device in tort law, and especially in negligence law, is not just it does not only fall on duty of care. So duty of care is a very is a very powerful control device where if the if the court thinks, oh, we can open up too many cases, they can just define the duty narrowly, saying, oh, you know what, this person has no duty, therefore um, no action at all. But this control device is also uh, present in other stages of the negligence inquiry as well. So for example, uh, breach or standard of care in this case. So the, the court can make a balance of consideration in this case, you know, a proportionate consideration of whether we find a breach of duty of care by this person. Then in the, in the other later stages, we have seen remoteness, for example, and even um, like, uh, what, what do you call it? Uh, defenses for different um, negligence liability or even novels act as intervenious. So all these things are controlled devices to make sure the liability is not too wide. And, and because, so in, in my article, I propose that we should, in this case, shift the control device to the later stages, particularly the balance of, uh, sorry, the breach stage, which is the standard of care stage. Because if you put the control device at the duty of care stage, you will miss out on those asymptomatic people, as I you know, mentioned in, I think it was the first question you asked. And you will also create a perverse incentive uh, for people not to take the test if you define 
the duty too narrowly. So I don't think the control device is very um, desirable to be placed so early in the inquiry. But it doesn't mean that we should not control it at all. It should be put uh, towards the later stage, and especially I think um, the, the the breach stage. Like, what, what kind of action we can um, uh, we can re we can see as satisfactory discharging this duty. And I think just by putting on a mask, in my opinion, is sufficient to discharge that duty. And I don't think that's too onerous, both uh, in current uh, pers you know the, the the perspective of right uh, we, the from okay from our our perspective right now or from an individual health protection point of view um but there there will still might be some you know opportunistic individuals trying to have this kind of um trivial claims it, it, um, you would say in my personal opinion these claims would most in most situations be settled by insurance and that's how the tort law operate in real life as well that insurance companies and, and insurance plays a huge role in not just uh, the compensation that claimants get, but also whether they should be allocated a duty of care in the first place. And I think in the LSE Modern Law Review, um, there was an article by, by Merkins talking about the fact that if this particular uh, individual has insurance, then court has a reason not to allocate burden, not, not to allocate duty of care so as to you know, prevent a double insurance and wasteful insurance kind of situation. And I, so I think, um, but insurance claims would solve most of the, um, the floodgate argument that you might be concerned with. However, there will be some situations where I think this might still um, have some significance in going into litigation is where, uh, you know, when a person is being subject to wrongful death claims. So I think as a family member, if one of your loved ones or friends died from COVID-19 because of some negligent transmission by some others or even in more uh, serious situations by the employers, then you might have a reason to rely on this possibility of, of having a tort claim in the first place to, 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 to bring a trial. And so this is the purpose of this article is trying to say that it's not trying to make everyone, you know, to sue each other uh, after getting COVID-19, but rather at least to, you know, think about the possibility of whether this can be done in the first place. So as to give those wrongful death, uh, you know, victims, friends and families, a possibility to have, to get some compensation either from individuals or, you know, some corporate entities uh, to seek some redress. Yeah, that's the, the practical significance of this exercise. Definitely. Um, and aside, aside from the floodgates um, argument, there's the, um, I mean, arguably the, the biggest problem, which is causation. Um, and I wanted to ask you um, the difficulty with establishing proximity under uh, Capero, um, since it is hard to know with certainty whether that specific defendant's actions caused the transmission, uh, you know, in the context of a global pandemic. And given the fact that the virus can remain uh, on surfaces for days. Um, yeah. So um, as I as I identified in the article as well, I think causation would be the biggest hurdle um, to achieve this action toward action uh, to to make this uh, to to make this succeed. So I think uh, that's why we need to stay away from the conventional uh, but-for causation um, in the first place, because it's just simply impractical to know that, you know, you get this particular tortious virus from this tortious person. And how do you distinguish whether this particular virus is from the tortious person or from an innocent source? So that's why I, I, I don't think the, but, the traditional but-for causation is workable here. But it doesn't mean that courts will stop here. And there are multiple situations where the courts have sort of, um, I wouldn't say departed, but at least give us some exceptions to the buffer causation. Um, you know, the, the most salient one is the is the Fairchild causation. But that Fairchild causation, I don't think is applicable is applicable here as well because we don't have the false negative situation here. Instead, we have the Bonington test uh, causation. Sorry, the, the exception to the buffer causation, where we're not trying to say that the particular defendant gave me the COVID nineteen or caused me to COVID nineteen. We're trying to say this particular person make my COVID-19 situation worse or materially contributed to my disease. So you can't have a situation where this person is completely healthy in the first place, then they get the virus from this tortious uh, source. But you can also have a situation where you might already be infected and you are not exhibiting any symptoms, but you, you are made, your, your condition were made worse 
by this exposure from a tortious source such that you know you got sick having high fever or even died uh, when you may not have died or it may not have such a severe symptoms of COVID-19 if it were not for that particular tortious source. So, um, so because of this Bonington uh, causation, it's called material contribution, we can sort of, um, I, I wouldn't say evade, but, but basically it's a different question from the simple but for causation we're talking about here because that's just simply in, impossible to establish. Instead, we're looking at whether this particular person has materially contributed to your current state of affair, um, your current COVID-19 symptom. And if it did, then uh, causation and a, and a cause of action can be established in that way. And, guess, and, uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> say, um, I guess no, no, go ahead. it is quite difficult to establish this kind of binary victim perpetrator dynamic because it is, um, it is cumulative cumulative and you can you know you don't really know um who exactly you got it from and this there's this kind of build-up effect of the virus in your system right um yeah so th that's why the, the bonington test um the divisible and indivisible disease comes in again mm -hmm. um i i think at least in my understanding of the current medical research uh covid19 might be theoretically look theoretically divisible because uh, your, your symptoms might aggravate with a higher load of the virus. But practically speaking, it's indivisible. However, uh, when it comes to causation, but for causation here, at least for Bonington test purposes, we just need the test, we just need the disease to be divisible in law, in theory. But the indivisibility part comes in when, it, when we are trying to assess the damages uh, of, the, of the suit. Because it is indivisible in practice, we don't know how how worse you have gotten because of this tortious source we don't know this um therefore we will i mean as court has done in the past with regard to these indivisible diseases in practice they will just give you the whole blame they will just put all the cost and all the cost on the defendant per se this um i wouldn't say the, the course in, in entirely unjustified in theory of course it is not based on compensatory uh justification because you're compensating more than what the victims are entitled to, 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 to receive. But I think it's mainly for practical purposes because you just cannot proportion or portion out which, which, which amount of virus is from the tortious source and which, from, which amount of virus is not from the tortious source. But that is why courts traditionally have, done, have dealt with this kind of uh, situation by giving all the cost on the defendant so as to make sure that the claimant at least have some compensation. Otherwise, it's the, the, the alternative scenario will be the total denial of, of damages at all, which is even uh, more undesirable from the, from the claimant's perspective. So for the divisibility issue, because it's indivisible in practice, the compensation award might be given in full, but it doesn't mean that th this disease is not divisible in theory. So that's why we can still use the Bonington test to establish the causation here. Definitely. Um, thank you. And looking to the kind of question of damages um, a bit more deeply, I think there are a few things that would be great to consider. Um, so would damages be compensation or harm based? So if someone's clinically vulnerable, would kind of we apply the thin skull rule and take that into account? Or um, if it's not possible to take apportionment into consideration um, when assessing damages, could this place too much of the burden or blame on the defendant um, and can kind of potentially um, lead to kind of unfairness? Um, for example, if the claimant themselves weren't taking reasonable steps to protect themselves. Yeah, I, I see your point. Um, this is yeah, this this is very relevant to the uh, previous question, previous question I answered. I think, well, actually, I don't really understand what do you mean by harm based because um, in tort law, usually it's the, the the main remedy we have is compensatory uh, damages, compensation. Um, so the other non-compensatory damages are usually like you know, aggravated damages, punitive damages, or even vindicatory damage. I think what I mean by harm based is probably vindicatory damages where uh, is tr the, the court is just trying to make a statement to vindicate a right. I think this is, uh, this, this happened in one of the cases in the reproductive negligence in, in Reese and Darlington NHS Trust. I think because um, basically in that case, um, the NHS performed a very negligent a sterilization operation on, on, on the victim. And as a result, the victim, you know, got pregnant. And, and of course there was a, uh, 
because the, raising a child is very expensive. So, so he or she may not want to bear the cost of raising an additional child is beyond their family planning. So they're saying whether um, you know, the NHS should be, should be bearing this extra cost. And the court there said, oh, you know, this is not compensatory. This is purely uh, trying to vindicate a right of reproductive autonomy of the, of the women. So I think there might be a similar, if you want to suggest a harm based um, from your perspective, it, it might be related to this area. Um, so I, I, I think, but I, I, I don't think in a real life situation, unless it's purely intentional, where there, are, there is some malice involved in spreading COVID-19, I, I think court would be very hesitant to, to award this kind of damages. Because it, this this cannot be justified based, based on corrective justice, because it's not trying to correct some wrong. It's just trying to vindicate a, a right that a person has, and which in this case can be already, you know, met by compensating the claimant. But but I think one point you mentioned is very relevant here is that oh, uh, would it be unfair to the to to potential claimant who might be relevant? Sorry, who might be responsible for? Um, you know, not taking care of their own health. I think this is what uh, the analogy can be drawn with HIV because some HIV um, tort theorists believe that, oh, it is the victim's own responsibility. Um, you should be the one. Okay, this usually comes in the context of, you know, sexual relationships because, oh, you should be the one finding out whether your partner should be uh, HIV positive or not. It's a, it, you are responsible for your own health and everyone should be responsible for their own autonomy as well. So that's why they want to put the, burden on the claimants or on the sort of victim per se. I think um, this might not be the situation in, um, in COVID-19. However, if, if COVID-19, for example, oh, you should be in a position of self-protect by wearing a mask, that's fine if you come too close to the person who has a very high possibility of being you know, COVID-19 positive, then there might be contributory negligence claims here. And that is governed by the statute. So which is called the Law Reform Contributory Negligence Act 1945, section one would say that court would have the discretion. So court here will have a lot of lots of discretion in apportioning blame here if they really find that the claimant is responsible for at least part of the part of the damages, I would say. So um there's definitely a possibility, but in an ordinary situation, I, I, I wouldn't think uh, courts would consider this until they find at least a, a breach of duty in the first place. So if there's no breach of duty in the first place, we won't arrive at this stage. Um, yeah, so so that's my, yeah, I, I, sorry, as well as the thin, thin skull rule, if this liability is, is breached and is, is um, tried to, is, is being imposed on a defendant that's been breached, I don't think uh, there's any limitation to that just because the person is more vulnerable than more ordinary people. So the thin skull rule, I think it will still apply uh, because it's about the uh, type of loss, not the extent of loss. So if you're identifying the type of, you know, in this case, physical health, um, there's no limitation on the extent of damages that you can claim in this case, apart from, you know, remoteness and contributory negligence. Um, and you talked about testing incentives earlier and yeah. kind of problems about this, um, people resorting to kind of, you know, blissful ignorance and not taking tests and stuff. Um, what would a model uh, that establishes a duty of care but simultaneously protects these testing incentives look like? Um, you know, would a duty to test regularly take necessary steps to obtain a test form a test? form a part of this extension of duty of care um, before um, a duty of care not to transmit is established? Um, yeah, so I think I think the reason why I define a duty of care so broadly is, is try to capture, or at least try to prevent the perverse incentive of, of not seeking a test. Mm. Um, yeah, so if you define the duty of care broadly, one of the ways for you to discharge your duty of care is for you to find out whether you're positive. So that is my, you know, you might opinion, try to create an incentive for people to, to get tested. Um, but however, at the uh, when, I, when that article was written, I think it was at the initial stage of the COVID-19 pandemic where testing may not be as widely available as it is right now. So because of the changes in these circumstances, uh, what constitutes as a breach might also uh, change accordingly. And I think 
at that time when testing was not available. And even until now, some countries, I don't think the testing was widely available as well. Um, we probably won't put too much burden on the individual to seek test in order to discharge their duty of care. But now in the UK, at least, at least from what I understand in the situation here, testing is pretty widely available. And you, there, there's both public and private testing facilities for you to, 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 to know whether you are positive or not. And there is no virus leak problem as well because, because testing right now is pretty, is pretty fast. The, the turnaround time is, I think it's 20 minutes or even less than that. So um, there is a lower chances of virus leak because of the waiting time before you getting a test and the result of the test. So because of all these changes in this technology development, I would say um, the standard of care would also vary. And um, you taking a test right now might be sufficient for you to discharge that duty uh, in, in the first place. And if it's a negative and you don't have any virus and you believe you don't have any virus and you have reason to believe that, uh, then if you, again, let's say due to the test being inaccurate and you infected someone else, I don't think you should be uh, you know, liable for that because it's like a legitimate, legitimate expectation from taking a test. That's the reason why you're trying to find out whether you still have a virus. So um, I, I, I think the, the burden on the defendant in this case might change according to the availability of testing facilities around him. And I think the reason why that we define duty so broadly is to make sure that people have an incentive to keep on going to take the test. And this can be accommodated by both um, either model of cause or model of wrongs if we define the duty broadly. For sure. I think, um, as you said earlier, um, these things are assessed kind of on a case-by-case -case basis anyway. And it's that is especially the case in the context of this pandemic where, you know, these developments are happening just really, really fast and the law kind of evolves as, um, you know, things uh, happen. Um, yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I, I think it changes too. I mean, I think uh, once we progress to a more advanced stage of the pandemic control, I would say, um, there might be different, oh, for example, vaccine as well. I mean, this, this might be controversial because someone are against vaccine, but um, there might come you know, a situation where if you get the vaccine, uh, it, it might be seen as discharging your duty altogether. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you won't be discharging or breach of, it doesn't mean that you will be breach of a duty that you don't get a vaccine. There are other ways for you to you know, satisfy that duty. But I would say that I, I foresee you know, just getting a vaccine itself is enough to discharge that duty. Um, just as a concluding question, it actually um, was vaccine related, but just in terms of the fact that um, we've got people who refuse to take a vaccine and then some vaccines have different um, effectiveness rates. So some have like a 90%, some have a 60% kind of, would it be a blanket statement that um, getting vaccinated disposes or discharges the duty of care or would it kind of be assessed on a case by case basis? I think um, based on the current understanding of vaccine, um, if you have 90, 95 or 96% of the effective rate, that's more than uh, what the tort law requires because the tort law only requires on a balance of probabilities, which is, I think, more than 50%. So if you get a very effective and a credible source of vaccine, I, th I think that's enough to, um, to discharge your duty because tort law is not, it's not trying to guarantee that you won't you know, spread a virus. It's just that you shouldn't be spreading virus negligently. So if, if you get the vaccine and in the end, for what, whatever reason that you still spread the virus, that's not negligent. That's just tough luck, I would say. Uh, and, and it happens, this is moral luck and circumstantial luck, I would say. So we're not trying to prevent, total preventing the spread of, like, uh, sorry, the virus totally, but rather trying to make sure that it is not spread negligently. And if you get the vaccine, which is of high, such a high efficacy rate, then I don't think um, you can be called negligent if you indeed, for some reason, spread the, spread the virus. But it doesn't mean that um, you will have to get a vaccine because if you don't get a vaccine, there are other ways for you to discharge that duty. And I, I imagine, you know, just by wearing a mask or make sure that you self-isolate when you're told to do so, those are, you know, probably enough to discharge the duty as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Great. So just kind of going off on the questions part, uh, James has a question as to whether employers would be um, vicariously liable for COVID transmissions within the workplace. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't see any reason why not. And I think the, the, the practical significance of this inter, in, intellectual exercise is not trying to encourage everyone to opportunistically or, um, you know, for whatever, for bad reasons, just to try to uh, uh, bring a suit against someone else, but mainly for those uh, who, who died because of this negligently transmitted virus. And employers in this case might be liable as well. So if they don't put in sufficient you know, COVID safety precautions, for example, uh, you know, make, make sure that they order their employees not to come out to work if they're sick or they're, if they're exhibiting some symptoms. And if they don't do that, and, and in the end, you know, bad consequences resulted and someone died, I, I, I think employers would be on the hook for that because uh, they have, but we have to make sure that the, the spread of the transmission of the virus was done in the course of the employment that might be a big hurdle, not just with COVID-19, but with, with multiple um, vicarious liability related tort suits. So that, that's not unique to, to, to COVID-19 or disease transmission, but you have to somehow find a way to show that, oh, the particular person, uh, the exposure, the tortious exposure came about to, uh, in the course of that employee's employment. And I think employers might try to find a way to, to dodge that for, for some one way or the other. But theoretically, I think it's possible. And I think the practical significance of this exercise is to make sure that uh, those people, especially those people who died from COVID-19 can, can seek some redress either from individuals or in this case, um, corporate entities because they have the deep pocket to, to, to shoulder, uh, to, to make repair as well. If you just, you know, trying to sue an individual, he or she might not have the enough resources to, to meet your claim. And, and that is why you, are, you have a better incentive uh, to, to, to sue the employer as well, because if you sue the person instead, you may not even get any compensation. Great. Uh, so I guess that's a nice little link to conclude episode seven of the ELR podcast. So thank you so much, Julius, for coming on here and speaking to us about your work, especially as we are still in the middle of a global pandemic. There is really something to be said about being able to look at the current state of the law and almost kind of being able to predict the future legal landscape regarding disease transmission or its knock-on effects on UK society and our roles as kind of normal citizens who owe certain duties to each other and just kind of listen. Oh, we have a question. Oh, fab. Um, so Minix asking about if there is some sort of legal protection for negligent actors um, and on the clear, if there is a clear-cut threshold that counts as negligence and transmitting on purpose. Interesting. Yeah, I think the legal protection or, sorry, um, I, I think the protection we're talking about here might be, met by, might, might be met by insurance. So I think liability insurance here, it's, it's not just with regard to COVID-19, but any kinds of tort uh, insurance. And just now when we talk about employers, usually they'll have these kind of liability insurance as well um, for most corporations and businesses, big and small. Um, so, so they are exactly designed to meet um, this kind of claims. And especially if, if someone died, the claims could be pretty big. And it's, if, especially if there's a whole class of people having a class action, then the suit, it will be even worse. So these liability insurance are exactly trying to meet this uh, sort of claims, I would say. But if you talk about legal protection, I, I understand I might refer to statutory protection. So for example, if the parliament believes that oh, certain, certain, employ, certain employees or certain employers should not be liable at all, for example, NHS. And if let's say, for example, a nurse you know, got the COVID-19 from, from treating a patient and then transmitted this virus to someone else in the hospital while she was working, um, maybe, maybe parliament thinks that in this situation, we don't warrant, uh, we, we don't think ish, we should put a liability on, on, on NHS for this matter, then they can intervene to make sure that, okay, we will stop here, we'll carve out an exception from this duty. But I think if you ask the court to do this, um, just by carving out duties specifically for purely policy reasons, it might seem a bit beyond their constitutional duty to do so. Um, but of course, I think if it's really deserving circumstances, the parliament would try to introduce some exceptions to this. But in the meantime, 
uh, most of the claims can be borne by insurance and insurance plays a very huge role in private litigation and tort claims, uh, not just for COVID-19, but in all sorts of tort claims. Great. Uh, before I kind of close off this, anyone have any questions before we kind of close off? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Fabulous. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, just what I've observed through the podcast. Let me just gush for like two minutes straight. Sorry about that. But I think this episode pretty much shows like the high level work that student academia has had like now more than ever. Because um, I think it allows us as well as, of course, like the people listening or watching, depending on how you like your podcasts, um, to see how the law works and I guess should work in modern society through a different lens, which I think is very refreshing because we usually have like academics with like 20 plus years of experience in the law review and now it's just kind of like having that student perspective and that debate I think is really cool. Um, so I just like to express a very warm thank you actually to everyone in the LSE Law Review uh, who have been collaborating since I think December last year. So it's been an absolute pleasure and it's so nice to see your plans finally come to fruition. Um, also a big thanks to the audience members who have asked such well thought out and interesting questions and just contributing to the discussion at hand. It's been lovely to have you today. Um, just before we kind of close off and before I kind of hand it over to Jaren, I just want to take this opportunity, of course, shameless plug, to remind everyone that we are still accepting submissions for articles to be published on our website. So if you are an Exeter student who has an essay of a mark of 74 and above, and you fancy getting that edited and published, feel free to send it to us at exeterlawreview at gmail.com. Uh, Jaren, any last words or maybe promotions? Sure. Um, just want to say a big, big thank you to Exeter Review, to Sean, Francis, uh, Celine, and Lisa for this podcast episode. Uh, I think it's been an absolute pleasure to work with you all since December. Um, I think it's great that, you know, especially in this COVID-19 world, we're able to come together to collaborate on more online events. Uh, and as you stated uh, very rightly, Sean, I think it's it's incredible to be able to come together as student law journals and provide that student perspective, um, you know, on academic discourse itself. Um, so yeah, uh, it's been it's been a great pleasure. It's a great great closing as well, I think, uh, for both our academic years. And as a final plug, I uh, just wanted to say to everybody that once again, you know, the LSE Law Review is published on Houghton Street Press as well as our LSE Law Review blog. We're currently closed uh, for submissions for the year, uh, but we do open up again uh, over the summer holidays. So do keep a lookout on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Amazing. So thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode of the Law Review Podcast. Bye.